Well, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Richard. I'm one of the leaders here at Kingfisher. And we're going to be looking at the Bible together, and it really help you if you had a Bible in front of you. And if you didn't bring one this morning, there is a box of them at the back. Please feel free to go and grab one. And we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2. I'll just arrange the furniture, and then we will read together. So we're in Galatians chapter 2, we're looking at verse 11 through to 21. This is God's word. Let's listen to what he says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners... Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Our God in heaven, we have sung about the power of your word. Uh, We pray, almighty God, that you would, by your spirit, um, give us eyes to see your truth as it is presented to us here in this passage, that we might see the Lord Jesus and we might believe on him. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, um, June 2014 was very significant, as I'm sure you know, because it was the first global fact-checking summit. You remember that? Probably not, because it was very small, very makeshift, just a few people gathered together in London. Uh, But since then, fact-checking has become a booming industry. And we hear about fact-checking all the time, don't we? Um, I read an article this week about the anti-misinformation world, anti-misinformation, check the facts, we want to check the facts, and it appeals to us, we want there to be fact-checking, uh, we want it to be, it appeals because I think that there is a, a widespread suspicion about everything, uh, but also we want facts to be facts, we want to know what's the truth and what is not, because we don't want to be lied to, do we? We hate to be lied to. 
And yet I wonder if there are some lies that we accept just too quickly. And maybe the most pernicious lies uh, aren't those that come from the outside, but they're those that swim around within us. And maybe you know these lies, that little voice inside, that little voice that says, you're not worth it. Do you know that? That, that, that little voice that says, you are not loved. You're not okay. You're hopeless. You are done for. You know, those little lies that swim around within. And it's very hard to find a reliable fact checker for what goes on inside here. Or maybe in Galatians 2 we will find some help. And we've been working through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Um, these are churches that Paul started. Um, Paul went to these places. He told them about the Lord Jesus. These people put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul went away very quickly, they lost sight of Christ. Now, they took their eyes off him. It's like if you want to draw something, if you want to accurately represent something in a picture, then what you need to do is to look at the thing you're drawing. You need to look at it and look at it and look at it and then look at it again. Uh, a website with some advice for art students gave the top bit of advice for an art student is this. It says, failing to look at what you are drawing is the most fundamental error an art student can make. I reckon something pretty similar could be said about Christians, couldn't it? Failing to look at Christ. Failing to see Christ as he is. Uh, Christ, not as we imagine him to be, not as the world around us tells him to be, but, but failing to see Christ as he is, is one of the most fundamental errors a Christian can make. And it's an error that can be devastating. Well, in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, Paul is kind of combating some lies that are circulating around the churches in Galatia. Uh, In these churches where Paul has been, other people have come in and they're saying, that guy Paul, he just brought you half a message. What he told you was, he he kind of sold you a dud, really. Um, he, He didn't tell you everything, that there is more to it than what he said. You have to do beyond what he said. What Paul has done is changed the truth about Jesus. Paul is not on the same page as the churches in Jerusalem. Uh, And so in response to that, Paul has been rehearsing the the history. He's been putting facts straight. Uh, First of all, he said in chapter 1, he got the message directly from the risen Lord Jesus. It can't get more authentic than that. And then he says a long time afterward, he went to Jerusalem. We saw it last week. And he, he said to the church leaders in Jerusalem, he said, hi, guys, this is the message that I'm preaching And they said, well, that's very interesting because that's the message we're preaching. We agree we've got the same message. So they united together and said, that's the message that the world needs to hear. That's what we saw last time. Our passage this week, Galatians 2, 11 to 21, picks up the story a little bit later. Uh, There's an incident that Paul wants these uh, these churches to know about. He wants them to know about it because he wants to show how important it is to keep looking at Christ. Now, this passage, really, uh, in the book of Galatians, is the, it's the kind of theological heartbeat of the letter. Uh, everything else that follows is a kind of explanation and application of what is said here. Let's have a look. What comes first? First of all, we see that there was a crisis in Antioch. And I see verse 11. Paul says, when Cephas is Peter, Peter's name is Cephas, when Cephas came to Antioch, 
Now, it's very confusing. There are two Antiochs. There's a Galatian Antioch. That's not the one he's talking about. He's talking about Syrian Antioch. Syrian Antioch was a huge and important city. Um, And in Acts 11, we can read that in this important Roman city, it was an important Christian city. Because this was the first city where where the first non-Jewish church was started. There was a church in this place that was a mixture of Jewish background and Gentile background believers brought together. It was a place where believers were first called Christians. And in that church, Barnabas and Paul were among the leaders, and Peter paid a visit. During that visit, this incident happened, and Paul felt he had to publicly confront Peter. What is it that Peter had done? What was his action? Verse 12. Before certain men came from James, that's the brother of Jesus who is leading the church in Jerusalem, these certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. Doesn't sound too much of a big deal, does it really? Uh, For us, Um, but it was a pretty huge, huge deal for them. Uh, The Jews did not eat with the Gentiles, never. Uh, The thinking was that to eat together was a declaration of unity. It said you were on the same level. Uh, But the Jews said, no, we're not on the same level. The Jews are the people who belong to God. Nobody else does. And the only way to be part of God's people and to belong to God was you had to become Jewish. Now, now Peter had already learned that that was nonsense. Uh, God gave Peter this vision, this vision of a great sheet coming down from heaven full of animals. And in the vision, Peter's hungry. And God says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says to God, no way, I will not do that because I have never eaten anything unclean. And God said to Peter, Don't call things unclean that I have called clean, that I have made clean. And Peter's wondering, what does this mean? And as he wonders, uh, these men come knocking on the door asking for him, men who are not Jews. Uh, They want Peter to come with them and tell them about Jesus. And Peter understands what the vision is about. The vision is that Christ is offered to all people. And so he must not separate himself. And so Peter, he lived that out. And when he goes to Antioch, he eats with the Gentiles. Because there's no distinction, because they are all one in Christ Jesus. Until, as Paul says, until these certain men came from James. And when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. That was what he did. What was his motive for it? We're told there, aren't we? Why did he do it? Paul says it was because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. In in these early days of the church, the the Christians were persecuted. Uh, At first, mostly by by the Jews. Uh, See, the Jews saw this new group as a threat to their way of life. And and it, it could have been that when Peter was in Antioch, he received news of a fresh bout of persecution. Now, James himself would, would soon to be killed, be killed by, by the Jews for believing in Jesus. Maybe, maybe it was that, that, that Peter heard about a fresh bout of persecution and he knew that what he did would be reported. And, and he knew that if what he was doing in Antioch was told in Jerusalem, it would make the situation so much worse. He'd be adding fuel to the fire. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was fearful. But he had great influence. His actions are noticed. When he's in Antioch, the other Jewish background believers copy what he did. Even Barnabas did. And we might have a bit of sympathy for Peter in this if we think about it. It's a a fairly pragmatic solution. He hasn't stopped believing. 
He hasn't changed his statement of faith. He's, he's not changed what he thinks about the gospel. But Paul looks at it and he sees what he's doing and he, and he realizes that there's just this great problem with Peter's actions. <clears throat> In the first part of chapter 2, we saw last week, and Paul speaking about some false believers, people who claim to be Christians but are not. And he said, these are people who have deviated from the truth of the gospel. And, and these are people who are forcing Titus. They wanted to force this man, Titus, to be circumcised in order for him to be saved. Well, now in the second half of the chapter, Paul picks up on the same language to speak about Peter. Verse 14, Peter's actions are not aligned with the truth of the gospel. And that word that in verse 3 is translated compelled, they wanted to compel Titus to be circumcised. We find it in verse 14, which says, you force, you compel Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. See, the matter was much deeper than, what, than who was at your dinner table. The actions of Peter are implying that the Gentiles are not all the way saved. That they're not true Christians. They may have got a start. They may have made a beginning. But to finish the job, they had to become Jewish. They had to follow all the Jewish customs. Now, Paul stood against this. Peter himself stood against this. At the Council of Jerusalem, just shortly afterwards, uh, Paul and James and Peter would all agree together that this was wrong. There's so much at stake At the end of our passage, uh, Paul says, what is really on the table is not the food you eat. What's on the table is the grace of God and the death of Christ. Peter's actions led people away from grace and made Christ's death pointless. Before we look a little bit deeper into why that's the case, I think we ought to just pause to think about the challenge that comes to us. That crisis in Antioch shows We can deny the gospel by our actions. The things that we do can lead others away from Christ. Of course, it matters very much what we believe. But also it matters that our actions align with that belief. And and Peter got it wrong on this occasion. He he lost sight of Christ. And, And he lost sight of Christ. Do you remember why he lost sight? He was afraid of people. He had a fear of man, a real fear maybe of harm to himself and others, but his fear of man clouded out his view of Christ. It's worth us thinking about that a bit. Um, Just uh, after this service, I've timed an email that will go out with some questions for us to reflect a little bit more on that, maybe to talk to others about. We have to ask ourselves, what about you? Can you see Christ or have other things clouded uh, the vision? Peter maybe made that classic mistake of the student artist, failed to keep his eyes riveted on the subject. He failed to look at Christ for all that Christ is, and his gaze shifted onto the the threats of people. And and with that shift of gaze, he wavered, and he was in danger of dragging others away. We have to ask ourselves, can you see Christ? Can you see him? When Paul confronts Peter, he confronts Peter with the truth about Christ. That's what he's saying to Peter. He's saying, Peter, you need to look at Christ. You have to keep your eyes riveted on Christ. In verses 15 to 21, Paul reminds Peter about one of the most precious and most important truths about Jesus Christ. 
the truth that Paul speaks of in these verses is called justification by faith alone. So the, um, the, the defining articles of the Church of England are contained in the 39 articles. It's the kind of equivalent of, their, of our statements of faith. Uh, article 11 says about, speaks about justification. Uh, and it says in that article, it says that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine. It is a wholesome, most wholesome. It is a proper, healthy piece of truth. That's what it's saying. It's saying this is a truth that is, it is so good for you that every part of it is nourishing. It is most wholesome and very full of comfort. It is most wholesome and very full of comfort. That could have been written in direct response to the passage we have before us today. Now let's have a look at why. Verse 15, let's pick it up there. Now Paul is speaking to Peter. He says, we, Paul and Peter, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. What is this talk of justified? What does that mean? It's the language of a law court. A law court where the whole of creation is being put on trial. As you read through the Old Testament, you see this building anticipation, especially in the prophets, of a great future day of the Lord. This great day when all the wrong in the world will be ended. A a day when every injustice will be put right. A day when the whole of the cosmos will be purified and renewed. And it will be a day when every life is assessed against the Creator's standard. And it will be a day when God makes good on his word. His word that he has spoken from the beginning that says that the soul that sins will pay for that sin in eternal destruction. God is not to be messed about with. He's not to be trifled with. God is most holy. And he is the judge of the whole world. And every one of us will be examined against his perfect standard. We're not going to be compared to others. We're not going to be compared to our own expectations. But our lives are going to be measured against God's standard. And to be justified is that as a result of that examination, at the end, the judge will give a verdict of righteousness. Justification is that legal declaration. It's the decision of the judge that the defendant is not guilty. The decision of the judge that the defendant is blameless. Now, Paul's speaking to Peter about the final judgment, a day when we stand before God in all of God's holiness. On that day, what will be the verdict? That's the question. What is the judge going to say on that day? Well, let's look at what Paul says to Peter. Verse 16. Peter, he says, Peter, we know, Peter, we know this, that a person is not justified by works of the law. Our works of the law, we'll see it again as we go through Galatians. It's a, everything God has commanded us in the Bible to do. Obedience to God, Paul is saying, will not be the basis of our justification. Do we hear that? Because Paul says it again, a second time. Not by works of the law. Have you heard that? Have you heard it? Because he says it three times in the same verse. He says it again. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
He's saying, that is a dead end street. Do not go down there. If you think you can, you can stand before God's judgment and you can offer to him your works of the law and say, God, because of these, you should declare me righteous and then expect him to declare you righteous. Paul says that is just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. A person is not justified by works of the law. On the final day before the judgment of God, there will be no one who is declared righteous because of the good they have done. Now, now, now with that, do you see why Peter's behavior is so troubling? Because by Peter's actions, he is implying that these Gentiles in the churches in Galatia had to follow the Jewish customs in order to be saved. So that he was implying that they will be justified by the works of the law. And Paul says, Peter, we know that's not true, Peter. It says, Peter, you and I, we're Jews, aren't we? And, and both of us, probably in different ways, but we've tried that way. We, we tried to go down that road. We know it doesn't work. We know it cannot work. There's no one who's going to be justified by obedience to God's rules. But that doesn't mean that justification is out of the question. It doesn't mean justification is impossible. It just means you don't go that way for it. Well, how is it possible? On what's the basis? On what basis could God, on that point of judgment, give a verdict of righteousness? How can anyone, how can anyone be justified before the judgment of the holy God? Well, listen to what Paul says. It's not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 16, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Peter and Paul. They put their faith in Christ. Why did they put their faith in Christ? So that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Now, faith is not works. Now, believing and doing are opposite. Faith is a, is a trustful dependence and it, it must, to be faith, stand by itself. It can't be propped up by the good things that we do. Now, faith will stand alone, trusting Christ, only trusting and only Christ. Paul says it is faith in Christ. That's how we're justified. Faith alone. By faith alone, we will receive from holy God a verdict of righteousness. By faith in Christ, on that day of judgment, God will declare us blameless, not guilty, perfect, he will say. And he will issue that verdict on the basis of faith in Christ. Let me give you just a very simple definition of what a Christian is. Really, really simple. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer counts that sin because of faith in Christ. You hear that? A Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer counts that sin because of faith in Christ. Faith is not work, says Paul. And then he, he adds, I think, faith is not only not works, faith is not fiction. Now look at what he says in verse 20. He's really pushing it deep now as he, as he explores this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I live by faith. See, this, this faith is a faith that connects us to Christ. It forms a spiritual bond so that you and Christ will be treated as one person. 
So, so in that bond, that bond that faith creates, in that bond, what is mine belongs to Christ, and what is Christ's belongs to me. What do I have in that then? What, what, what do I bring into that bond? I, I bring my sin, that's what I have. I bring my sin and yet by faith I'm joined to Christ so that he has my sin. Now why else would he be crucified? He was crucified under the judgment of God for a sin that belonged to him, but it wasn't his. It was mine. And I was crucified with him. What does he have? What's Christ got? Well, his is righteousness and perfection, and he has life. He has real life. And by faith, I am joined to Christ. So I have his life. Now, why else can I live? Now, why else can I call upon God as my father? Why else can I have an unshakable hope of happiness beyond the grave? It's because all that Christ deserves is mine. No, we can say, I am one with Christ So his perfect righteousness, his absolute obedience, it all belongs to me. And and similarly, Christ can say, well, I am one with him. I am one with her. And so, well, that great big sinner, all their sins, they're they're mine. Their their condemnation, it belongs to me. I own it for them. Justification by faith alone is a most wholesome doctrine and it's very full of comfort. The value of this truth, if we, if we grasp this great truth, if we really get, if we see the Christ of justification as he is, it will flood our souls with rich comfort. Now, we hate to be lied to, don't we? We hate it. And, and there are those lies that refuse to budge in our hearts. And, and, and when those lies are refusing to budge, we struggle to find a reliable fact checker. Well, let's see how in verses 17 to 21, we get a lie-destroying fact checker. Look at verse 17. Paul Paul says, But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Paul speaking to Peter, remember? He said, we we were born Jews. He said in verse 15, we were born Jews, not sinful Gentiles. I think he's mimicking his opponents at this point. That distinction between sinners and not sinners that his opponents want to pull out, it doesn't stand up because he says, by coming to Christ for righteousness, seeking to be justified in Christ means we must admit that we are sinners. If we come to Christ to be saved, we say we need to be saved. Our best, it's not enough. Paul and Peter, they've done that. They've come to Christ because they know their hope is based on the merits of Christ, not on what they do. You see, we cannot hold on to an idea that we are somehow good enough and at the same time put our faith in Christ. We can't do those things. But but as we wrestle with that, there's this little lie that can really begin to become very loud in us. You you hear the little lie as we realize we have to admit and confess that we are sinners. What does the lie say? There you go then, you're a sinner, aren't you? You've admitted it. You admit you're a sinner. And, and you know, says the lie, what will happen to sinners. The, the, the lie will say, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says God will punish you. God will punish you ever so severely. And, and the lie begins to build and says, in fact, in fact, God's already started, hasn't he? Look at the mess of your life. 
Think about how ugly your sin is. Think about how horrible it is. Think how you deserve nothing. You deserve nothing. You're going to get nothing. You're scum. You're worse than scum. God hates you. That's what the lie says, isn't it? Well, look at Paul's argument. Verse 17, to be justified in Christ, I must be a sinner. Doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Paul's saying, my attempts to keep the law have failed. I've destroyed the whole idea of trying to earn righteousness by doing good. And if I now go through the rubble and try to do it all again, I'm going to be no closer to justification. What verse 18 is saying again, justification by works is a dead end street, so don't bother. But he says, verse 19, look at verse 19, this is where it comes. Through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. The law kills me. The law declares that my sin deserves divine condemnation. And Paul says, I died to the law. How? Well, faith joins me to Christ. And so, so with Christ, we are treated as one, and I have been crucified with Christ. That's how I died to the law. Now, all the condemnation deserved by me was put upon him. So every accusation that can ever be fired at me, every accusation about my sin and about what my sin deserves, it is answered in the death of Christ. And that means the law has nothing more to say. I am dead to that law. So then we can say to that lie, come on, bring it on. Bring it on, you little lie. Let's have this out, shall we? Let's have this out. The lie comes and says, you're a sinner. And we say, yeah, fine. I confess that I'm a sinner. I've committed many sins. I I will continue to commit many sins daily. And the lie says, well, there you have it. God will punish you and he will punish you ever so severely. And we say, no, he will not. And the lie says, why not? Because the law demands it. And we say, fine. But I'm dead to that law. I'm dead to it. All that that law had against me has been put upon Christ and I died with him. So now I live free from all condemnation. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, it puts fire in our bellies. It fact checks the lies and it tells the lies that tell us um, that because of our sin, we are done for. The lies, uh, to get the facts checked, we've got to get Christ in view. Don't we? We've got to see Christ as he is. Because if we start to let the lies block our view of Christ, then all we're going to see is ourselves. And if we just look at ourselves, we've got nothing. But when we grasp hold of this, we can sing it out. In the 16th century, Martin Luther, writing on this very passage, wrote this. He wrote, By faith in Christ, a person may gain such sure and sound comfort that he need not fear the devil, sin, death, or any evil. Sir devil, he may say, I am not afraid of you. I have a friend whose name is Jesus Christ, in whom I believe. He has abolished the law, condemned sin, vanquished death, and destroyed hell for me. He is bigger than you, Satan. He has licked you and holds you down. You cannot hurt me. That's the faith that overcomes the devil, says Luther. Justification by faith alone is a most wholesome doctrine, and it is very full of comfort. And yet to draw the comforts, we've got to see Christ. Now Luther, who writes so stridently about the comforts that flow, he also wrote this. He wrote, visualize Christ in these, his true colors. See Christ as he is, 
And then he said, I do not say that is easy. And he writes about how his whole life he had this, this twisted, distorted view of Christ. All he could see was Christ who condemns. Christ is the judge who puts him down. and That was all he knew and he feared that Christ and he withdrew from that Christ. And maybe we do too. And maybe the lies inside feed upon those false views of Christ. And we hear that voice getting louder inside, that voice that says, you are scum. The voice that says, God, God hates you, doesn't he? You're not worth it. You're not loved. You're not okay. You're hopeless. You're done for. Now deal with it, says the lie. Face up to the facts, says the lie. And you can only despair. You have nothing else. What can we say? Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let that verse do some fact-checking in our hearts. You ever believe you're not loved? You ever hear that poisonous whisper that says, you're scum? God hates you. Fact check it with the word of God. Look at verse 20. Let verse 20 tear the throat out of those lies. Now here we have Christ in his true colours. It's not easy to see him in his true colours, but linger on it and linger long. We live by faith in him. We don't look to ourselves. But we trust and we depend on the Son of God. And what is the Son of God like? What is he like? The Son of God, of course, he's the Lord of majesty, isn't he? The Lord of creation through whom all things were made. The Lord of infinite power and greatness. We live by faith in the Son of God. But to see him in his true colours, we must not only see his power, we must also see, as verse 20 says, he is the one who loved me. This is a love that is peculiar and precious. You see what this love led to? Who loved me, and what comes next? And so gave himself for me. Gave himself into condemnation. Laid down his life for me. His love drove him to give his life and rescue me from the mess and the muck of all my sin. And and notice what that shows us about his love. He loves me at my absolute worst. And when my sin just covers me up in shame. In, in that moment, you know the moment when you just, I, I don't believe that I, I even did that. In that moment, the things that can come out are so vile. And that moment when all we have is deep self-loathing because of what we are, that's the moment. In that moment when we most deserve to be banished from God forever, right there and in that place, there it is that he loves us. He doesn't say, smarten up and I will love you. And then when we fall away, his love cools off. He loves us and gives himself because we are sinners. It's in the darkest place and it's in the deepest pit and it is in the foulest mess. That is where he loves you. He gave himself for our sin. He's taken it all away. He's taken it. We can't get it back. Try to grab it back and feel the guilt, but it's false because he's taken it. So when we sin, and we do, 
and when we feel awful, and we do, let Christ in his true colours show you that he loves you. Now that sin, now you know that sin, maybe it's the one that comes to mind right now in this moment. That one especially, know that Christ, hear Christ say, I gave myself for that sin. Because I love you. So you see verse 21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But he didn't die for nothing, did he? He died for love for me. Now Paul's argument, he's putting himself in a place of a typical believer. And it's, 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 isn't it so precious that he puts it like this? In the first person, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me. I tattoo it on your heart if that's even possible. Say it to yourself over and over again. The Son of God loves me. It says it right here. He loves even me. Me in my mess. Me as I am. Loves me and he gave himself for me. That is Christ in his true colours. Christ didn't die for nothing. No, we shout it out to the vicious lies in our hearts. Christ did not die for nothing. He died for me. That I might be justified in him. And live in him forever and ever and ever. Christ's true colours are the colours of love. Full of love. And his love is directed personally and particularly to you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you at your worst. He loves you at your best. He loves you at the cross. He loves you at the empty tomb. He loves you now. And he loves you forever and forever and forever. He loves you in this life. He loves you in death. He loves you into eternity. He loves you. Now would you say it to yourself now? We're going to take just a moment of quiet. Say to yourself in the quiet of your own heart, the Son of God loves me. And gave himself for me. And say it again and again and again. And pray that you will see Christ as he is. And you will trust him always. Let's take a moment of quiet.